And we're looking at various passages in the uh, Acts of the Apostles. Uh, this is a letter or a book that was written by Luke. And um, we find that Luke becomes one of the travelling companions with, with Paul and, um, and others on their missionary journeys. So we're going to look at 17 and uh, verse 1. Remember they had, um, if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, that you know that um, Paul and Silas were in prison. Um, they were put there because a riot had ensued um, and they were blamed for the riot and they were put in prison. But they've moved on now and they've moved uh, to uh, another major city uh, in that province. <clears throat> now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica and where there was a synagogue of the Jews and Paul went in as was his custom and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead saying this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring, out, to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also and Jason has received them and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, Jesus and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest they let them go. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that although written so many years ago, it is pre preserved for us, for our instruction. And Lord, we ask you that you will open up your word to us. Lord, Holy Spirit, just make this word real to us, we pray in Jesus' name. <coughs> if you put the first slide up, please, uh, Adrian, thank you. Good, so... <coughs> The Unstoppable Church. We're going to look at it under three headings. An effective strategy for mission, jealousy and persecution, and in adversity, unstoppable. So the first point then, an effective strategy for mission. Paul was clearly a man on a mission. Not only had his life been totally transformed by his encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road, such that he now identified himself with the Christians he was on his way to destroy at that time. But also, he had been given a commission by Jesus to take the gospel, especially to those who were not of his Jewish race, but to non-Jews, referred in those days to as Gentiles. And although Paul's overall aim, which he mentions elsewhere, um, was to preach Christ where Christ was not known, that's his main aim. Right from his conversion and baptism, he seemed to have a strategy 
for fulfilling his mission as he traveled on his journeys around the Roman Empire, uh, which started in Damascus and was that he would go first to the synagogues and preach Christ there. Um, in Acts, 9, Acts chapter 9 and uh, verse 19, which is right after um, his conversion and um, joining himself to the skeptic, uh, skeptical Christians, it says this, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul, as he was called then, later became Paul, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now it might um, strike you as strange that having been given a commission to take the gospel to the Gentiles, he starts in the synagogues, wherever he goes, which were places of worship for the Jews. But as we see from our passage today, that some devout Gentiles, Greeks in this particular case, attended these synagogues. And as we've seen before, Paul had a, a, a passion for his own people. It grieved him so much that his own people, the Jews, had rejected Christ. So he had a passion for them, and so he would go into synagogues. But the other feature of his strategy was that he would go mainly to the principal towns of a province, even if there wasn't a synagogue there. As in Philippi, which is described as a leading city of the district of Macedonia. In the absence of a synagogue, Paul and his companions went to the riverside place of prayer and Paul preached there. You remember when we looked at this passage and there was Lydia there and others in the place of prayer and they were converted. And we heard about, I say, heard about that, I think about three weeks ago. So here in our passage we see then, as they journeyed, they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, not stopping there, but intent on reaching Thessalonica, uh, as was his custom, both as a Jew and now as a minister of the gospel, he went into the synagogue. And we see that his aim was to demonstrate from the scriptures, that, uh, which we would call the Old Testament, um, that the good news he was proclaiming, proclaiming was not a new religion. Uh, it wasn't a replacement for worn-out Judaism, it, but a completion, a fulfilment of all that Judaism had promised right from the time of Abraham. You remember when God called Abraham, uh, he said to him, am I going to make you a great nation, a great big family, a great nation, and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And of course that was coming uh, to, into fulfilment as the gospel uh, was uh, spread. So he could confidently go into the synagogues and open up the Jewish scriptures and demonstrate that the suffering, death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, which would have been fresh in the minds of his hearers, was clearly foretold by the prophets. And in a similar way, when Peter preached that same message about Jesus after the believers had been filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, there was a great crowd there who'd gathered, for the festival. 
Peter said this to them, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And Peter uh, had quoted from the prophet Joel and the Psalms, demonstrating that this outpouring of the Holy Spirit following the resurrection of Jesus was a fulfilment of all that had been promised years before. And this had great impact on the crowd, you may remember, because 3,000 were added to the church on that day. So here then, in Thessalonica, Paul has much more time. It says he was there in the synagogue three Sabbath days to present a comprehensive survey of what the scriptures had to say about Christ. Christ is the Greek form of the word Messiah. And in particular about his suffering, death and resurrection. He would have undoubtedly have quoted from the prophet Isaiah what we know as chapter 53 uh, which so graphically depicts the suffering of God's servant and how this was for the salvation of the people. Uh, If you don't know Isaiah 53, have a look at it and put that alongside the accounts of Jesus' uh, arrest and trial and crucifixion and resurrection and you will see how this prophecy given 600 years before how so closely Jesus fulfilled uh, all that that prophecy said. I'm just going to read a little bit of it for just to illustrate verses 4 to 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. This is God's suffering servant. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All like we are, like all, we're sorry, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This chapter from Isaiah is an an amazing gospel statement. It tells us that God's suffering servant suffered not for his own sins, but for the sins of the people. And God had laid uh, our sin upon him. And that by his stripes we are healed. And uh, and we've um, turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So it's a wonderful gospel statement. And Paul would have undoubtedly used that. So the next point then is jealousy and persecution. The result of Paul's preaching and reasoning from the scriptures was that some Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many devout Greeks and not a few leading women. Um, Luke does not tell us that the Greeks had previously um, converted, that's that word that um, was raised this morning, converted to to Judaism, but only that they were devout, uh, which probably suggests that they were not proselytes, as they were called. Uh, That is, full converts to Judaism, which uh, is a clue as to why the Jews were jealous of Paul-winning converts. No doubt they had hoped that these devout Jews would in due time fully convert to Judaism, including submitting to the rite of circumcision. Now they had been enticed away by this new teaching and all hope of drawing them into their fold was gone. So undoubtedly they were jealous. 
even though Jesus can be clearly seen in these Old Testament scriptures and though the suffering, death and resurrection of Jesus are so clearly a fulfilment of them, they were blinded by jealousy. They couldn't see the truth because of jealousy. Um, in the late 60s and early 70s, um, the church in the UK and, and indeed further afield experienced a renewal by the Holy Spirit. Individual Christians were baptised in the Holy Spirit and uh, congregations transformed by more ex open expressions of worship, not being constrained by traditional set forms of worship and liturgy. It was called the Charismatic Movement. And for those of us who lived through that, it was very exciting. How many of you were Christians in those days and lived through that? Was it exciting? Yes, it was, wasn't it? It was very, very exciting. Scriptures concerning the gifts of the, the Holy Spirit and the realities of each Christian being part of the body of Christ, joined to other members, growing together in love and unity, almost ignored previously, were now a hot topic of conversation and preaching. This renewal was not confined to any one particular denomination, but wherever these scriptures were embraced, and the Holy Spirit welcomed, churches were transformed. I remember going to conferences where people from all backgrounds and Christian persuasions were coming together, hungry for more of the Holy Spirit. And it soon dawned on people that this was not a new phenomenon, but a restoration of what the church was like in the New Testament. And that the promises of an outpouring of God's Spirit that those early believers embraced was available to us. However, this restoration was not welcomed by all Christians and all churches. Some held to their traditions so tightly that they valued them above the scripture and they resisted what God was doing by his spirit to revitalize the church. As a result, many people who wanted to embrace the change felt they needed to leave the traditional churches and join what became known as the new churches, which were determined to build on scriptural foundations rather than on tradition. And this church, in fact, is a product of that movement, albeit many years down the line. I'm pleased to say that now, 50 years on, there is a much wider acceptance of the gifts and ministries of the Holy Spirit in the church and its many expressions. But sadly in those days, um, many people were fearful of what was going on. Um, we were almost uh, accused of being um, you know, the works of the devil as the things that were happening in churches. People were fearful of letting the reins go and letting God build his church. Maybe through jealousy as they saw uh, people leave their congregations, they became hardened in their views and accused the new churches of ex excesses that were hardly ever experienced. I remember in those days that um, uh, we, were, we were asked whether we were going to be joining those who were going down to the new forest and to form a commune there. Uh, <laughs> no, we weren't. And um, did we... Um, have access to all our church members' bank accounts? No, we didn't. Did we have a key to their front door? No, we, <laughs> no, we didn't. And um, some of us even 
um, went to see um, some leaders of a Christian denomination and they quite seriously said to us, do you tell your people when they can go on holiday? So there were all sorts of, of rumours and I think when we don't understand something, when we don't understand something, we can become fearful of it and then we can try to find things with which to attack it and discredit it so that we feel justified in holding on to our views. Uh, and this is what was happening with some of the Jews in Thessalonica. Their jealousy of Paul winning converts blinded them to the scriptures that clearly spoke of Christ and his suffering and should have convinced them that this was uh, the glorious fulfilment of what the prophets had foretold. But so what they didn't understand or refused to understand, uh, they opposed and looked for something with which to attack Paul and his companions and discredit them. They did not attempt to argue their case from the scriptures. Interesting that, isn't it? I think Paul would have welcomed that, a debate about it. He would have really welcomed that. Um, they didn't attempt to argue from the scriptures, but to get them falsely accused of civil unrest. So angry were they that they completely ignored the ninth commandment, which is, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbour, which is what they were exactly doing. Presumably Jason had opened up his home to the new believers in Jesus and this was probably the beginnings of the church to which Paul later writes uh, in the two letters that we know as First and Second Thessalonians. When they couldn't find Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the authorities. And there were two accusations brought against them. Firstly, they said, these men have turned the world upside down and have come here also. Um, they've caused a riot elsewhere and they're going to cause a riot here. Word had obviously reached Thessalonica uh, that there had been a disturbance in Philippi involving these men. Interestingly, just as here in Thessalonica, it had been an issue of jealousy that turned the people against them. You remember the owners of the slave girl who had been freed from a spirit of divination. Um, they had their nose put out of the joint. They'd lost their income. Actually, the accusation brought against Paul and Silas in Thessalonica would in a very short time come true. Christianity would indeed turn the world upside down. As the gospel advances and more and more people are saved, there will be similar instances where people's vested interests will be affected and they may attack the, the ministers of the gospel, the messengers of the gospel. Pimps whose prostitute slaves are freed from their trade and welcomed into the shelter of the church. Drug pushers whose clients no longer need the drugs. In Colombia, although predominantly a Roman Catholic country, Large areas of the country are controlled by criminal organisations, drug cartels, paramilitary groups. Christians are seen as a threat to these organisations as they represent an alternative way to behave in society and they are often subjected to violence. And then secondly, they are, the, the, the second accusation is that they are preaching that there's a new king who is in opposition to Caesar. Now we know that the Jews had no love of Caesar. He had robbed them of their sovereignty, extracted heavy taxes and in many aspects of life made them subservient to the Romans. 
but it suited the Jews' purpose to get the Romans on their side and do their dirty work for them. Does this remind you of anything? Do you remember this is exactly what the Jewish leaders did with Jesus? They were jealous of him and wanted rid of him. They had no authority to execute him themselves, so they thought, sought to ingratiate themselves with the Roman governor Pilate. During his ministry, Jesus had refused to let the people make him king in an earthly sense, and um, he told Pilate at his trial that his kingdom was not of this world. And Pilate could see that the char charges brought against Jesus were false. And so we read in John 9, and uh, beginning at chapter 12, we read this. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the, the judgment seat at the place called the Stone pav Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Fancy that. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Today, um, the persecution of Christians around the world is on the increase, very much on the increase. North Korea is still top of the list. Now, North Korea has been in the news because of its ballistic missiles that it's firing, but it's top of the list in terms of persecuting Christians. And um, Islamic extremism continues to strangle the expression of the Christian faith. Millions of Christians around the world live their lives against varying levels of discrimination, discovery, violence, arrest, execution, murder, having their buildings burned down. It's absolutely terrible. And um, if you'd like to put the next slide up, please, Adrian. Um, here um, is a list of 50 countries where there is persecution against Christians, from the very severe to the moderate, but in every one of these countries, Christians are being persecuted. And often the, the believers, as here in Thessalonica, are falsely accused by their enemies of breaking religious or civil laws as a means of having them arrested or killed. We know, don't we, that in Islamic countries, Christians are often accused of blaspheming the prophet. That's their favourite, when in most cases that would not be the case. We're not going to dwell on this, but I will read this list. And I just want you to, just for a moment, think about our brothers and sisters around the world in all these countries where there is persecution in one degree or another. North Korea, Somalia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Sudan, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Yemen, Eritrea, Libya, Nigeria, Maldives, Saudi Arabia, India, Uzbekistan, Vietnam, Kenya, Turkmenistan, Qatar, Egypt, Ethiopia, Palestinian territories, Laos, Brunei, 
Bangladesh, Jordan, Myanmar, Tunisia, Bataan, Malaysia, Mali, Tanzania, Central African Republic, Tajikistan, Algeria, Turkey, Kuwait, China, Djibouti, Mexico, Comoros, Kazakhstan, United Arab Emirates, Sri Lanka, Indonesia, Mauritania, Bahrain, Amman, and Colombia. Staggering, isn't it? And these Christians are, are facing persecution merely because um, they own allegiance to Jesus. But there is some good news. Above all, the fact that the church in many of these countries is growing. Amazing, it's growing. There's been a remarkable growth in believers from a Muslim background, not least from those who, having encountered extreme Islam, choose Christ instead. And all around the world, persecuted Christians are continuing to discover a depth, a strength, a brightness to their faith that can only be found in the darkest of times. The marks, truly, of an unstoppable church. So, my last point then, in adversity, unstoppable. The, the converts in Thessalonica had apparently been meeting together in Jason's house, clearly already a family. Luke refers to them as brothers. Right from the outset, they formed themselves as a family. It was an embryo church built on the foundation of the prophets' writings and the testimony about Jesus consisting of Jews and Gentiles. The Jews had a rich heritage in God. Their relationship with God going right back to Abraham with so many promises now being fulfilled with the coming of Christ. The Gentiles, on the other hand, were outside of this relationship, alienated from God's people, strangers to God's promise, with no hope in the world. But it had always been part of God's plan to include the Gentiles in his family. I've said it perhaps more than once before that um, God's plan was that the Jews should be a light to the Gentiles. You can read that in many places in the Old Testament. They were to be like a visual aid to the rest of the world, what it was like to be a nation under God. So it was always God's plan uh, to have the Gentiles in his family. So now, through faith in Christ they were becoming part of a new people where there was no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. Paul puts it like this in his letter uh, to the Ephesians and the church at Ephesus was made up largely of Gentile Christians. In chapter 2 and verse 17, he talks about this new people uh, that he is proclaiming through the gospel. And he says, And he, he came... That's God, came and preached peace to you who were afar off. That's the Gentiles. And to those who were near. That's the Jews. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So that you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In him the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 
In him you also are being built together into a place of God. Uh, sorry, a dwelling place for God by his spirit. So no distinction between Jews and Greeks. And elsewhere Paul says no male, no female, no slave, no free. All one in Christ Jesus. So then what of this fledgling church in Thessalonica? Was it stamped out through persecution? I mean, you can imagine these new believers saying, what have we got ourselves into? Um, we've, we've believed Paul, we've joined with him, and now we're being persecuted. Or, or was it unstoppable? Fortunately, we know quite a lot about this church. The mob and the authorities apparently didn't find Paul and Silas, and the brothers sent them away secretly at night, at night into Berea. And then on to Athens. From there, Paul sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to find out how the Christians were getting on. Paul wrote them two letters, as I mentioned earlier, uh, probably within a year of his first visit. And he was overjoyed at their faith. Timothy came back with a message to say, everything's going fine, Paul. Everything's absolutely spot on. Right? So he was overjoyed at their faith and steadfastness and how the gospel was spreading because of them. And the first letter, Paul's first letter, is full of praise to God for how this church was progressing. I'll just read a, a few verses. So if you're turning in your Bible, you might look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and, and verse 1. He starts with the usual greeting. Paul, Silvanus... And Timothy, Silvanus, I think, is another name for Silas. It's another way of putting Silas. To the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just remember, this is a very, very new church. Very new church. Grace and peace to you. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labour of love and steadfast hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction. So the persecution was going on. With the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Archaea. That's what we now know as modern Greece. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Archaea, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us, from the wrath to come. What a wonderful testimony about this church. Wouldn't it be great if somebody visited us and could say the same things? I hope they could say the th same things about us. So undoubtedly, 
This church was unstoppable. I'm not going to um, expound any very much of this um, uh, this passage, but I just um, want to refer to you, to refer you to verses four and five. We see here that the mark of being chosen and loved by God is that He sends His gospel to us. God sends His gospel to us, which is not just words, but it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. The gospel has power. The proclamation of the gospel has power. And it's the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. Paul and his companions were not out to make a name for themselves, but in the midst of persecution and suffering to proclaim God's good news to the people. Isn't it good to be part of an unstoppable church? You think that? Do you believe the church is unstoppable? Uh, That God's church is going to grow throughout the world? But are you sitting here this morning saying, I'm not sure whether I'm actually part of this unstoppable church? Um, You may come here week by week. Um, You may participate in the the, uh, activities of the church. But you're not really sure whether you're part of this unstoppable church. Let me tell you, um, there is a sense in which you can't join it. You can't join the church just like that. Because on the day of Pentecost that we've made reference to already, um, uh, it was said of those early believers that God added to the church daily those who were being saved. So it's God who adds people to the church and he adds them when they are saved. And we, we've, I've just mentioned that salvation comes to all who will believe. You might say, well, surely there's more I have to do. No, it's clear that we become Christians when we believe the testimony about Jesus Christ. When we believe that he died for us on the cross. When we believe that God took our sin and poured it into him. And in exchange gave us his righteousness. We don't have to do any more. More will follow afterwards, but in order to be part of the church, to be a true believer, to be saved, we have to believe. That's all we have to do. That's all God asked us to do, is to believe the testimony about Jesus and how it applies to us. And this belief is not just a mental assent to something. I might say, well, here I am on the tarmac and I believe this pilot can take this plane to my holiday destination. Um, But I have to get on the plane and entrust myself to the pilot. Otherwise, I don't go anywhere. And it's the same in our belief. When we say we believe in Jesus, it means that we're entrusting our life to him. We're handing over our life, the sovereignty of our life. We're handing it over to him. We're allowing him to be Lord of our life. We're committing everything to him. Nothing left behind. It's all for him. So that's what we mean when we say that we believe in Jesus Christ. A church that is built on a sure foundation of the gospel is unstoppable, even in the face of severe persecution. Jesus said... I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If you're sitting there and you know 
there's something that hasn't happened in my life. I know that I'm not part of the church in the way that you've said. Then you can be. You can be even this morning. You can just commit your life to Jesus right where you are. Shall we just pray for a moment? Maybe I'll pray a prayer on your behalf. If you can say amen to it, that will be great. Heavenly Father, I don't know everything. There's lots I don't know, Lord. But I have seen that you have given your son for me. That you caused him to suffer and to die, not for sins that were his, but for mine. I believe that it was for my sin that Jesus gave his life, that he died on the cross. And Lord, I recognize I can do nothing to save myself. There is nothing I can add to this mighty work that you have done through Jesus on the cross. I can't add anything to it. And so, Lord, I come empty-handed, but, Lord, I reach out my hand of faith and I receive the free gift of life, of eternal life, that you are offering me in Christ. Lord, I do it falteringly, but, Lord, I do it with all my heart. I reach out to you, Lord, right now and receive you as my Lord and Saviour. Amen. Mm. If you prayed that prayer,